Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. This is out of the Gospels in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what happened until the flood came and took them. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with hand on the mill, and one will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who, then, is the faithful and wise servant? whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. He then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he's not aware of. He'll cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Happy Thanksgiving. It's Advent. Almost. So uh, we are about to enter into Advent, and because it's a super short one, I thought, well, let's talk about Advent a little bit. So I asked Silas, if you're not familiar, by the way, with what Advent is, it's a season in what's called the church calendar leading up to Christmas time. And so I asked Silas what he thought Advent meant, and he said, it's a four-candle countdown till Christmas. And I thought that was pretty good. Advent literally means coming. It's coming in Latin, the Adventus. There are two comings of Jesus that we remember in Advent. The first is, you know, his first coming at Christmas time, right? And that's kind of what we're getting excited about. So in Advent, we remember and celebrate the long wait for Jesus to come the first time. We read the prophets. We read the Psalms. We read about everyone that was looking forward to Jesus, Mary and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna and all of the prophets and the Old Testament. And we remember Jesus, of course, coming, right, as a tiny baby with shepherds and angels and sheep and oxen and mangers and all that stuff. But there is another focus of Advent, which we often ignore, and I'll talk about that in a second. And this is the second coming of Jesus, to judge the living and the dead. And you know, it's in the creeds. We don't say the creeds here, but I believe in Jesus, you know, born of the Virgin Mary, blah, 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 blah. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. It's in there. And we tend to overlook this one, don't we? Like if, if you or I were to ask 100 randos on the street, hey, what is Advent about? How many of them out of 100 would say, oh, that's easy. It's about the second coming of Jesus to judge the living and the dead. Probably not many, right? Would that, is that what you would say? 
But if you think about it, we aren't really waiting for Jesus to come the first time, are we? He already did. He already came. He already died. He rose. He got the t-shirt. We are waiting for Jesus to come back. We, are, we looked back to his first coming because uh, it's an analog for his second coming. It reminds us that we, like our spiritual forefathers and foremothers, are part of a people that are waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. But we ignore the second coming of Jesus, don't we? And um, why, would, why would we do that? Why, why do you think we might ignore the second coming of Jesus to judge the living and the dead? John? It's hard, okay? All right? It's not a comfortable topic. It's not cute. It's not cuddly. There's no—it's not like Talladega Nights where we get to pray to six-pound, eight-ounce Lord Baby Jesus lying cutely in the manger, Right? Um, we, we like to think about that Jesus, not the Jesus from Revelation whose eyes are blazing. And also, I think when we think about the second coming of Jesus, we think of cults drinking poison Kool-Aid or storing up canned peaches in the basement getting ready for the apocalypse, right? How many of, how many of you remember um, Y2K? Does anyone, was anyone alive? Okay, so when I, when I was in high school, some people work at Dairy Queen. My family owned a steel plant. So I got to work at a steel plant every summer in the hot sun to teach me the value of work. Luck, you're lucky, Noah, that you don't have to do that. Anyway, I met all sorts of interesting characters at the steel plant. One guy was Oscar, the forklift driver. And Oscar, he was a real Christian, and his church only pretty much read the book of Revelations. And um, the book of Revelations! Anyway, and Y2K was coming, and Oscar and his church knew that this was going to be the big one. And so their church was buying guns and Top Ramen, you know, and storing it up, right? And, and this is a great witness to everyone else working at the steel plant that wasn't a Christian. And I was like, oh, Oscar, come on, man. But the second coming makes us think of books and movies. Do we have any pictures? I, I had some, yeah, like this one, who's seen this guy? Or these types of people, like those guys, okay? And so... But here's what I want to say. If we cede the second coming to crazy street preachers, we are in danger of spiritually malnutritioning ourselves because the second coming of Jesus is actually an important part of a complete balanced theological breakfast, and we ignore it to our peril, okay? So this morning, I, this is what I want to do. We're going into Advent. Is it cool? And I thought, hey, wouldn't this be fun? I'm going to preach about the second coming. So I want to reclaim it from the crazy street preachers. And I want this morning to actually just look at what did Jesus actually say about his own second coming? So as we prepare for Advent, I want to say, Jesus, what did you say about it? And what would he want us to know this week going into Advent about his second coming? Sound good? Okay, all right, we all still here? Don't run away. All right, so four things from our scripture today that Andrew read. Four things Jesus would want us to know about his second coming. First, when Jesus comes back, he will come as our judge. So in the gospel reading, Jesus talks about the story of Noah. And whether you believe that literally happened or not, by the way, if you look at ancient history, there are a lot of flood narratives. And just follow the train. So if you want to talk more about that, it's very interesting. A little side thought. But Noah's 
flood is a judgment story. I know that a lot of times it feels like the easiest story to make into cartoons and have animals, and Noah was nice to the animals, so you should be too. But really, this story is about God judging the earth. And so the fact that Jesus quotes this is part of, it shows you his mindset, that Jesus coming back is about judgment. Secondly, uh, Jesus later says the Son of Man is going to return like the master of a house who's going to give a performance evaluation to his servants. So when Jesus coming, comes back, there will be a valuation by Jesus of us and all humanity. Now, many of us, me included, don't really like the idea of judgment. Raise your hand if you like that idea. If that is a, raise your hand if you don't like it. Okay, there, and some of you are asleep, so that's okay. But we really live in the age of the autonomous individual, the age that was launched by Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau and all those thinkers. We have been trained and discipled by our culture not to like the idea of being subject to anybody's judgment. Isn't that right? If you don't believe me, just look across. Well, you can't look across the street. When you get outside, look over there at the Capitol and notice what's on the top of our Capitol building is under construction right now. But does anyone know who's up there? The independent man. Yeah, it used to be Lady Hope, by the way. But in the late 1800s, the state legislator took Lady Hope down. And this guy, we th I thought it was Roger Williams, but it's not. It's the independent man. Because here in Little Rhodey, we like our independence, don't we? We celebrate independence. We celebrate rebelling against the British crown. In Boston, they just threw the tea overboard. But what did we do? We hauled off and burned the Gatsby, and it's lying at the bottom of the harbor somewhere in Patuxent Village. We have been discipled, friends, whether we know it or not, not to like any kind of authority claim on our life. But here's the deal, just as a side note. If there is a God who created everything, including you, and defines good and evil in his own character, then he does actually have the right to evaluate us whether or not we, we like it, whether we like it or not. It's kind of like a moving freight train. It just is what it is, right? And so we can stand on the track of our lives and hold up a sign and protest and say, God, I don't want to be subject to any kind of authority or I, this, your judgment makes me feel unsafe or we can try to play chicken with God's justice, but he's going to win in the end, just like a freight train. So, but this is the thing I really want to say. God's justice is actually a really good thing, friends. We live in a moment of history, in a, in a kind of unique bubble of history, probably a more safe and privileged bubble than 99.9999% of all other human beings that have ever lived or are living. But there are people all over the world and all the way back through history for whom God's judgment is not, it, it's a blessed hope. It is an anchor for their weary souls. Let's just think about this for a minute. Think of the millions of people today and all the way back through history who have suffered unjustly. Think about the millions of human beings trafficked all the way from the Roman Empire and before, see I got it in there, to, um, through antebellum slavery. Right now, by some estimates, there are 49 million human slaves today, a quarter of whom are children. Think of the millions of people 
that are terrorized by crime and drug cartels, especially in Latin America, the police who do nothing about it because of fear or perhaps they're on the take. Think of the millions of Christians in particular throughout history and today in Asia and the Middle East who are suffering martyrdom or persecution. Some of these must wonder when they look at the world, is anybody going to do anything? Is anybody going to hold the despots and the dictators and the slave traders and the warlords and the corrupt politicians accountable? Are they just going to get away with it? Because might makes right. Does the long arc of history, like MLK and Barack Obama said, does it really bend towards justice, or is that just something people say? Will justice ever prevail? And the answer is yes, friends. Jesus of Nazareth is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And every human ruler, even like the one in the parable Jesus told, like all the Roman empires, all, all, all the people throughout history that have held power over other human beings, will give an account to Jesus when he comes to judge the living and the dead. Do you see why it's important, friends? If it's not there, then there's no absolute standard of any kind of morality against which to measure what's happening in our world. Human need, rulers need a reason to have integrity. They need a reason to be truthful. They need a reason to care for the weak. They need to, a reason to do what's right even when it's not popular. Every king needs a king. Every judge needs a judge. Every dictator needs someone who will call them to account for how they have treated the people God has made in, their, in his own image. And they can get away with all kinds of things in this life, but one day, friends, they are going to meet their maker, and he will hold them accountable. And the day of Jesus, the day of his coming, gives the unjust, those suffering unjustly, a reason to be hopeful. It gives those of us who are afraid a reason to speak truth to power. It gives those of us with means a reason to be generous. And it gives those of us who have been wronged a reason to forgive. It's actually the judgment of God that makes it possible for our human justice to be restorative, not just retributive. Right? When we try to replace God as the ultimate judge of other people's morality— we end up creating other oppressive systems. Think of the terrors of the French Revolution, right? Literally, they called it the terror. Because this was the moment when human beings said, we're going to take into our own hands justice. And what did they come up with? It was horrifying. The guillotine, all that stuff. When we take the role of God as judge, we create, and there have been them all throughout history, cancel cultures. I know it's kind of like a mixed bag, but... These cultures of cancellation have existed all throughout history. That's what we produce when we try to take God's role as judge. But God, when God is the judge, we can actually forgive one another. We can show mercy to each other because we know that judgment is in God's hands. It doesn't mean we let other people off the hook, but it means we can trust God to ultimately make everything right in the end. Does that make sense? It's a good thing, friends. Okay, so that's my longest point. If you're, you know, the other ones will be shorter. So when Jesus comes back, here's the second thing he wants us to know. It will be sudden and unexpected. Nobody knows when he's coming back. 
Jesus even says, I don't even know. The son doesn't even know. Only the father. I was talking to Andrew. He's like, Andrew's like, did he really say that? And then I said, yep, look here. And he's like, he did say that. So we, we follow the scripture, and we're learning new things all the time. Jesus knows a lot of things, but he doesn't know when he's coming back. Oscar at the steel mill was gravely mistaken. And anyone else that tells you, I have the secret formula. I'm reading the pages of the New York Times to figure out, you know, what's happening in Palestine, all this stuff. That, don't listen to them, friends. Jesus does not know when he's coming back, and neither should we. It will be sudden. It will be unexpected. As in the days of Noah, right? When Noah's flood came, people were going about their business, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, and then the flood came suddenly. And that's, that's the thing Jesus says. He promises us one thing. He will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So if you expect him, he's not coming, I guess, right? He's going to come when you don't expect. So that's the second thing. Easy. So how are we supposed to respond to the sudden, unexpected nature of Jesus' return to judge the living and the dead? Here's the third thing Jesus wants us to know. He doesn't want us to worry about when he's coming, but instead he wants us to maintain a state of constant readiness. Turn to your neighbor and say, constant readiness is what Jesus wants from you. Okay. Therefore, keep watch, he says. Stay awake. Maintain alertness. Maintain readiness. Think of a night watchman. A night watchman has one job and one job alone. Don't fall asleep, right? They don't have to do anything. They just have to not fall asleep. That's all they have to do. In Greek, this command is in the plural, so it's y'all, and it's in the middle voice. So it's something we do to ourselves. We do the action and receive the action of the verb. So basically, Jesus is saying, y'all, make yourselves ready. So Sarah travels a lot for work these days, and when she's home, she's very present, but she does travel a lot. And when Sarah comes back, she likes the house to be clean. So, as anyone else like their house clean? Okay. Uh, she cleans it before she goes, and when she comes back, she would like it to be clean. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that there are three slobs and men living in her house. Silas, Noah, and me, and I'm part of the problem too. Yeah. And all three of us struggle to pick up after ourselves. And so here's how the story goes. Sarah goes away, and the house slowly devolves into chaos. We have apple cores on windowsills. We have dirty socks on the dining room table. We have dirty dishes accumulating in the kitchen. We are a human clutter factory, it, it, capable of producing almost an infinite growing amount of clutter. And this cluttering process begins the moment Sarah leaves the door, until approximately two hours before her plane is due to land at TF Green. Now at that moment, here's what happens next. I get massively stressed and start barking orders at the kids to clean up their crap, half of which is mine. And I start to work on the backlog of dishes, and after two hours of frantic cleaning, the house looks not quite as nice as it did when Sarah left, but at least it's fairly decent condition. It's now ready. We have made ourselves ready for Sarah's coming, for her advent. But what if Sarah didn't tell us when she was coming? What if she told us, 
The Sarah will come back at an hour where you least expect her. Then we would have a problem, a major problem on our hands, or we would require a paradigm shift. Instead of waiting until the very last minute and scrambling to get ready, we would understand that our job is actually very simple. All we have to do is keep the house clean. Just keep it tidy. Just, just live every day, every moment, in light of the reality that Sarah could return. When you use a dish, just put it in the dishwasher. When you take off your sock, don't put it on the table. Just put it in the laundry bin. Just assume she could come back any moment. It's a paradigm shift. It is a life that is reoriented to the future imminent reality of a coming event. This is why Jesus, friends, doesn't want us to know why he's, when he's coming. Because he wants us to undergo a paradigm shift. He wants to give us the gift of reorienting our current reality around his future arrival. To be ready, to keep watch, to be prepared, and to live our entire lives in the expectancy of his coming. He's coming, friends. It's the one thing he's told us. He's not going to stay away forever. I don't know if we'll die before he comes, but he wants us to be ready. He's promised. I, I had a, a shirt, a blue shirt that I really miss. It has an old picture of Jesus on it. It says BRB and like 90s hip-hop script on it. But it could be. It could be tomorrow. What if it was? Would you be ready? Would I be ready? Would there be things that we're currently doing that we're like, oh, I should stop that? Are there things that we should stop doing? Are there things that we should start? There's certain things like when you think about it, either the coming of Jesus or your deathbed, that put your priorities in proper perspective. And Jesus wants us to live as if it could be tomorrow. And Advent is a moment where we get to try that on every year. It's a placeholder in the church calendar where Jesus wants to remind us, hey, friends, yeah, 11 months, yeah, but for this month, remember, it could be tomorrow. So he's coming back. He's coming back to evaluate us, and we need to be ready. How do we get ready? Here's the final thing that Jesus would want us to know. Jesus just wants us to understand the assignment. Have you ever heard, heard that, by the way? Like, I, I understood the assignment. Is this too? I, I learned this pop culture reference. Um, I'm not even really talking about it that way. Like, you know, when you understand an assignment, you totally slay at this thing, and you do 110%. It's awesome. We don't even need, we don't need extra credit on the assignment. We don't even, even need an A-plus on the assignment. We just literally have to understand it and do our best. So the, script, the scripture says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant who the master has put in charge of his servants to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant when the master on their return finds them doing so. So in the parable, Jesus gives the master, the, the, the servant, an assignment. Give everyone their food at the proper time. And so this servant, like all of us, are supposed to take care of the other servants. They have one job. Feed the other servants. The master's away. And they have two options. What are the two options, friends? 
One option, they can understand the assignment. They can do their best. And they don't need to use Wagyu beef or Point Judith oysters. They don't need to cook at Oberlin grade. They just need to feed the other servants, right? It doesn't need to be perfect. Maybe they forgot for a day. Maybe poor Susie, like, oh, we forgot to feed her last week. Like, but then they remembered, and they're like, all right, yeah, we should feed Susie. Say they got like a B minus. When the master returns, he says, all right, you understood the assignment. But there's a second option. They can fail to understand the assignment. So Jesus continues. He says, but suppose, actually, it's better here. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants, not part of the assigned task, and eat and drink with drunkards, also not part of the, ta- of the assignment. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. At an hour he's not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. So when Jesus comes back, he's going to look at this servant who was beating other servants and getting wasted and saying, you did not understand the assignment. You have chosen poorly. You have chosen not to do what I asked you, and so you will receive the consequence. You will be assigned a place with the hypocrites, which, by the way, are people that claim to be one thing and act a different way. And so our job, friends, is very simple. We have to understand the assignment. What is your assignment? What is the work that Jesus has called you to do? God gave me an assignment. By the way, worship team, you guys can come on up here. We're about to wrap. Um, Just as an example, God gave me an assignment several years ago, like 16 years ago, 17, in 2008, um, to help prepare the church in New England for revival. And so if, if you know of me or have some sense that I'm into revival, then maybe I've done okay on the assignment so far. But by 2015, I still wasn't doing the thing that God had told me to do. I w- instead, I would say I was functioning as a glorified middle manager in a religious nonprofit. And I wasn't doing my assignment because I was, a, I, I, because I was afraid. What would my organization think? What would the people around me think? What would my boss think? And so it was my loyalty to an organization over Jesus, my fear of failure, my fear of man. These things were keeping me from doing my assignment. But thankfully, on my 35th birthday, I had a conversation with a friend about the coming judgment of God. There was exactly what I needed. My friend Ryan told me, Greg, it's really cool God has given you a seed of his heart. He's given you a calling. He's planted this seed of his heart in you. And luckily, you haven't killed it. But you haven't exactly been doing anything with it. And then he said to me, Greg, you realize one day Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to ask you. He loves you. You're his child. But he will ask you, did you do anything with what I entrusted to you? And at first, it was the most terrifying thought I could think of. Oh, God's going to hold me accountable. But then, you know what it became for me? It became a galvanizing thought. It became a liberating thought. The coming of Jesus to evaluate every human being is just what I needed to be free from the fear of other people and their opinions. 
It's just what I needed to step out in courage and do the things that I was supposed to do. See, friends, we all need it. We all need to know. If you want to lose weight, you need accountability. If you want to quit porn, you need accountability. If you want to stop drinking, you need accountability. If you want to start a nonprofit, you need accountability. I needed Jesus' accountability. And so do some of you, by the way. By the way, some of us have assignments that God has given us, things that we're supposed to be doing with our lives, reasons that he's put you on earth. And I pray that it is a liberating thought to know the only person you need to worry about pleasing is Jesus. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks. The only person that matters is him. Parents, Jesus is going to hold us accountable for our parenting. Don't, don't skip that part. He gave us an assignment. Teachers, God's going to hold you accountable. None of this is without grace. But everybody needs an annual review, right? Any good boss is going to give you one. And Jesus is a good master. You don't need to slay at it. You just have to understand the assignment. Be faithful. By the way, I will tell you three questions that will likely be on the test when Jesus comes back, right? You don't, maybe you don't know your unique life calling. I'll tell you three things that I think will be on there. So you ready for prep? Number one, did you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul? and all your strength? Did you love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus says all of the law and the prophets hang on those commands. Did we make disciples? That's the last thing he told us to do before he left. So that's the last thing. All we have to do to be ready is understand the assignment. As we close, I just want to share one more way that we do need to be ready for Jesus to come back. And that is this, if we have not yet done so, we can do it this morning, but we need to put our trust in Jesus, in his death on the cross, in his resurrection, and surrender our lives to him. There are some of us here this morning who maybe you're here this morning, I don't know, you maybe came with a friend or you came with a family member, but as you're thinking about your life and you're thinking about the fact that God is going to come again, you realize, I haven't yet put my trust in Jesus. I haven't yet surrendered my life to him. But maybe this morning you're ready. So in a minute, I, I just want to give us an opportunity to do that in a moment. We'll open up the altar. Um, in fact, if you're ready to surrender to Jesus in a moment, I'm just going to invite you to raise your hand and I'll pray for you. But Jesus compares his second coming to the flood in the time of Noah. The flood, it was sudden, it was unexpected, but it was not without warning. So the warning in the time of Noah was the ark, right? It was this giant football-sized boat in the back of Noah's backyard. I don't know if they had backyards back then, but anyway, it was back behind Noah's house probably. It was huge. It took him decades to build. It was ginormous. Forget billboards. This was like jumbo, larger than the jumbotron at Gillette. And anyone who saw this ginormous boat sitting in Noah's backyard would ask one question and one question only. Noah, why are you building a giant boat in your backyard on dry land when there's no water? And Noah would answer, friend, the Lord has told me that he's going to bring a flood on the earth. He's going to bring judgment 
but he told me to build this boat so that anyone who by faith takes refuge in this vehicle of salvation can survive the flood and stand in a new world. And here's the thing. This was a large ark. This is a big ark, and we don't have a lot of arcs today. This is like, you know, Navy-sized boat here. There's plenty of room in this boat, friends. There's a lot of room in the ark. Turn to your neighbor and say, there's room in the ark. And if you'd been there and you had believed and you had trusted Noah and you had trusted the word that God gave to Noah, I bet Noah would have let you in. And it's no different with the coming of Jesus. As in the days of Noah, God is merciful. He's coming to evaluate and judge the earth. But he's given us a heads up for 2,000 years we've known. And as in the days of Noah, God has provided an ark, a means of salvation. For God, what does it say at the, all the basketball games? John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the ark, friends. He is the means of salvation. And there's room in the ark for you. And so this morning, if there are some of us here who have never placed your trust in Jesus, who have never surrendered your life to him as your king, but this morning you're ready to do that, and if that's you, I just want to invite you right now, just go ahead and raise your hand, and I'll pray for you. On the cross, Jesus absorbed all of our sins, all of the judgment of God, so that if we are in him, there's no judgment left. There's only mercy. Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Those in Christ Jesus. If you've hidden yourself in Jesus, every sin, every failure, every way we fall short of God's standards, all of these are covered by the mercy of God. If we hide ourselves in Jesus, like Noah hid his family in the ark, if we trust in Jesus like Noah trusted in God's word, then we will stand like Noah stood in a new world after this world is judged. And so, friends, if, if you're ready this morning to begin a relationship with Jesus, or perhaps you've wandered away from him, maybe you're wandering back this morning, but you know, yeah, this morning I want to put my trust in Jesus. If that's you, raise your hand. And I'll pray for you. If we are in Christ, we don't need to fear the second coming. We don't need to fear judgment. We don't need to worry about tomorrow. And with all of the people of God, we can pray. We can cry with great longing, with great expectancy, with great hope. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. So let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for giving us this wisdom about your coming. We thank you, Lord, that you're not going to leave us as orphans. But, Lord, you're, you're coming back to make all things new, to restore everything that's broken, to put everything to right. Lord, you are the hope of the suffering. You're the anchor of the soul. And so I pray that as a church... Lord, we would place our hope in you and that you would orient our lives, God, towards your promised future. And Lord, I pray that any that are ready this morning to say yes to you, to trust you, to enter into you, Lord, as the ark, 
Lord, we just pray, would you receive them into relationship with you right now? And so we're going to transition into a time of worship. I just invite us as we go into Advent or prepare to go into Advent. Um, let's meet with the Lord this morning. The altar is open. We have prayer ministers up here. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, come up and pray with someone. Also, if there's unfinished business in your life that you feel like, oh, I want to attend to that this morning, come on forward. Come, you know, you can kneel at the altar. You can ask someone to pray with you. Uh, but let's just respond to the word and to the Lord this morning.